The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. We're joined by the FIA's Nicholas Tombassis, the man behind F1's 2022 regulations, to give his verdict on how well they worked, the problems they caused, and what the future holds. And Gary explains what life is like for technical directors right now and tackles tyre degradation. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. As always, I'm Ed Straw, but the real star of the show is Gary Anderson, the man responsible for one of the most stunning-looking F1 cars of all time, the Jordan 191. Well, we're deep into the off-season now. Are you enjoying life, Gary? Yeah, enjoying life. It's, uh, it is, as you say, deep into the off-season, the off and that's the time, really, from a technical director's point of view, the pressure comes. Um, and from all of the technical groups and the heads of the technical group, you know, nowadays, Formula 1, the massive amount of people um so it's all about separating the groups into different areas but making sure that the communication from group to group is is there um it's the time of the year i always enjoyed um because it, you know you did you did have to scratch your head and think about stuff but the regulations now are so much more complex than they were in my time um you know, you, you really do need a group of people to understand the regulations because, you know, I, I keep saying way back um, when, when you talked there about the Jordan 191, you know, when you when we set about designing that car, you could bring the rule book home with you, have a read through it, you know, one evening while you had a cup of coffee and you would get a reasonable picture in your head as to what you could do, where you're allowed to work, what, what areas you could work on the car. Nowadays, it's just not like that at all. So to actually understand the regulations and get something on paper that allows you to visualise it uh, is an enormous task. Um, everything now is about coordinates and everything, you know, you, you take all the stuff around, let's say the front upright, it's got its own relative datum. Um, so everything there is about a datum at the front wheel and then things can happen around that, the width of the brake duct, the height of the brake duct, so, you know, everything has to happen around that coordinate and that coordinate's relative to a coordinate in the chassis so you can only put and think, put things in a certain space yes there's room for for differences because we can see that in the in the cars but there's room for differences to a certain level but it is so much different from what it was before where we had um, exclusion zones you might call it an area where you couldn't put anything uh, and an area where you could put whatever you wanted so it's it's a different world and you need to have more importantly before you start designing the car you need to have a group of people that really can sit down put what the intention of the rules are on a CAD model and come up with these areas that says this little box here we can think about doing anything we want you know this little box here is this size it might be you know five centimeters high by a meter long by two centimetres wide, somewhere along the side of the floor. But you need to de you need to define those areas before you really can hand it over to the engineers that are responsible for, for coming up with solutions to, to given things in those in those areas. So uh, although it's it's a really good set of regulations, it has driven the the team and the personnel in the team to a level where, you know, they have to grow because of that. You know, you need more people to do the same job. 
And also legally, you know, you have to satisfy yourself that how you're reading it legally is correct because if you ex try and exploit grey areas, which is what you're trying to do all the way through the regulation book, you need to make sure that you, you've got some basic depth and understanding behind that grey area rule uh, that you can, you can exploit. And the only way you can do that is legally because if it's wrong, you're going to end up fighting with somebody. Uh, unlikely fighting in court but it will be all about being able to be prepared legally to to put together the correct letters to say this is xyz this is why um so it's a you know the design team is not just a design team now it's a it's a legal department come um detailed understanding of reading something and putting it on on the cad system and then allowing the, the design engineers to come up with solutions to the problem the regulations for next year, I think, 180 pages or thereabouts, the, the latest edition. I'm not sure how long the regulations were when you were first involved in F1, but I think certainly in the 70s they were they were very short because they, they were just in the FIA yellow book then, weren't they? Yeah, they were the FIA yellow book, and then there was a small um, a small dedicated booklet to the regulations. Um, they, you know, again, I, I can't quite remember, but, you know, 10 pages would have been a push. Um, it definitely, you know, wouldn't have been any more than that. And again, it's it's time moves on. That's that's what it's all about. I suppose time does move on, and things have to be that um, more defined. I suppose is the right word to say it. But it's not just you know whenever we look at the regulations, it's not just what we see. It's right through the car. I mean, what materials you can use now uh, for different componentry on the car, what uh, the chassis structure, the, the carbon fibre materials. Um, you know, the, everything is now got limits each end of the scale on it somewhere along the line um so it's it's in one way it's a lot easier because you don't have to go out and look for what material could i use for this front upright assembly because it's defined in the regulations what what you what you're allowed to use we always used to be going out looking for the the next best thing you know we even looked at making carbon fiber uprights for a while um there's lots of things you could back in the old days where the, it was open so you could have a go at it but now it's not open um is that good or bad i suppose you know you've got to control it somehow and it has led to the cars being more reliable you know because you're, you're not pushing the limits in a lot of areas quite as much because there are there's a lot more control over a certain amount of things so there's benefits and, and negatives for everything i suppose you might say and the negative of the regulations now is the fact that there's no real room for the the entrepreneurship that you used to see, you know, finding something, a ground effect like Colin Chapman or the fan car like Gordon Murray or, you know, the six-wheeler like the Tyrrells. Um, there's, there's no room for that anymore. It's all about uh, detail and optimising detail and making sure that you're you're within the regulations or you've got a, a bloody good arg argument for why you went slightly near the mark. Um, so it's, yeah, it's all it's all about... The manpower you have, the brain power you have, um, and the amount of that you have, and that's why the big teams will, will always be doing a good job. It's amazing now as well that we've long since moved past the point where one individual can be said to be the designer of a of a Grand Prix car, but it's difficult even for the technical directors to conceptualise a car. There's stories of often if there's a discussion going on about something, in order to understand the the 
the uh, dimensions of something they they've literally got to go to the the specialist who's got the CAD to actually get to actually get it understood because as you were saying because it's all coordinates based etc it, it's so complicated to contextualize I mean as you say things move on do you think that there is a, a little bit of a loss in that and then it makes it so hard for those on the outside we know how much the fans of F1 like the technical side I think even those who aren't that engaged in the detail like the fact that it's such a technical sport but it makes it very very difficult to uh, to sort of explain to people what's going on doesn't it it does make it very difficult but i think you know an example of of the regulations and understanding the regulations i suppose you could look at the ferrari and the red bull this year and the mercedes and you could you know that's the visual part that, that, that we all see on television or or the fans see, um, and you know, side pod wise, there couldn't be three cars more different. I suppose you might call it. Um, but how big an effect do they have? It's all about the flow around the car, um, and you can achieve that in many ways. You know, the airflow itself. So if you looked at at cars, i.e., let's say the Williams, um, which has changed from a Mercedes side pod sort of concept at the beginning of the year to a, a Red Bull concept side pod later on in the year ish not quite but you know in that direction um it made the car better it maybe made the car a little bit quicker but it didn't make it a red bull challenger um it didn't make it a a mercedes beater uh it just changed the car you know within a, a small percentage of what it was and that that's the that's the big thing about it you can have massive massive visual differences in the cars and actually, the, the real difference in the stopwatch is, is quite small. So you need to just make sure that you're, it's, it, it's everything. It's the detail of everything that makes the car uh, correct. And so it's not one person, it's not one technical director sitting down there saying, you know, I want this or I'm going to have that. Come on, boys, let's get it done. It's about getting a group of people all to work. And the technical director's job would be to make sure they're all working for the same objective. You know, there's a there's a basic... Um, a plan laid down for what the car's characteristics should be um, and you try to refine those characteristics all the time and one of the things I'll again jump back to is aerodynamic changes with steering lock because there's there's very little very few things on the cars that uh, are actually uh, tunable relative to something else some driver input and you know steering is one of them you always have to steer the car and the one thing you do know is that in a low-speed corner, you need more steering lock than you do in a high-speed corner. So you have got a transient effect on something. And that's the one area where, you know, again, if I was a technical director right now, I would be pushing very hard for a you know steering characteristic specification and that to, to try to um, make sure that the things were doing the right, that, that steering was doing the right thing. There's many other things in the car, but you, you can't really alter the fact of, of your your braking you know the right height's going to change when you hit the brake pedal so you want the center of pressure to move in a certain way during braking because you've got load transfer just because of the braking when the car rolls you can't really do much about that you know it's going to roll in the middle of a corner so you need to make sure it's not doing anything negative um and the car's going to yaw the car's going to rotate around the corner so you need to make sure that in yaw the car the characteristic aerodynamic characteristic isn't doing something wrong so those transient conditions or what you need to specify as a technical director as to how you want them all to interact with each other because obviously they're all happening at the same time. First thing you do is brake, centre pressure moves, 
you put a steering lock on, center of pressure shifts, the car then rolls and starts to yaw, which center of pressure shifts. And that all has to work together. That all has to move in a certain direction. So that's the area where I think the technical director can lead to it. As far as all the rest of the stuff's concerned, the mechanical constraints of the car, you know, like on the Red Bull, we see a lot of antis on the suspension, anti-dive, anti-squat, um, anti-lift, more than other cars, I suppose you might call it. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where those things can alter the aerodynamic characteristics. So again, it's all got to work together as one. And that's the sort of thing the technical director sort of tries to relate. If you had more anti-dive, could you shift the centre of pressure less because the car will dive less? Uh, but then you can't exploit it too far because the driver doesn't get any feeling. You know, he needs, he, needs, he needs feedback from the car movement. The drivers, everything the driver feels is about steering weight and the seat of his pants. But he, he gets that through the car moving. If the car didn't move under brake and didn't roll, didn't yaw, and the steering load didn't alter, then he would have no idea where the limit was. So the better the car, the better the, the, the transient condition of the car, the more driver feeling he has. And again, it's technical director sort of should see it, should see the big picture. And then it's down to the individual expertise of the individual groups to achieve those uh, objectives. Well, we're going to hear from Nicholas Tombasis in a moment. He's the head of the F1 technical department, one of the key architects of the rules. But Gary, the 2022 regulations, the switch to these ground effect, heavily ground effect cars, the aim was to improve the raceability, so reduce the turbulence, allow them to run more closely. There was also objectives to cut the costs of the cars, more standardised components, and also try and level the playing field in the long term. That's going to be quite a few years in the making that one but how successful do you think the 2022 regulations have been well i believe they're a step in the right direction um i believe this uh, this porpoising problem that popped up caught everybody a bit by surprise so taking taking that out of the equation because some teams suffered with it more than other teams um but it was always just a knife edge whether you had it as a problem or whether it was okay the regulations are responsible for it because they, you know, with the ground effect, they dictated that the the car uh, would be beneficial running low to the ground. Um, so have they been better, whenever we take all that into account, have they been better? They have allowed the cars to follow closer for longer, I believe. That's partly tyre and it's partly the a lesser aerodynamic disturbance. But you'll never, ever stop that happening. You know, if a car is going through the airflow uh, at speed and it's, it's developing downforce, um, then it's developing turbulence. It's the same, you know, drive down the motorway behind a truck. It's the same deal. You know, you, you are getting turbulence from the vehicle in front of you. And um, you'll never get rid of that completely. All you, got, all you can do is the car that's following needs to have as um, least critical surfaces or... L- less stressed surfaces, I suppose, relying less on, on pure airflow than they used to have. And the car in front needs to be given a little bit less turbulence. And both of those work together then to mean means the car behind has got less of a loss, but you still have a loss. How big that loss needs can be and acceptable and how, how little it has to be, who knows. Um, I didn't see 
all season long, I can't say I saw much more simple overtaking or racing driver overtaking than I've seen in the past. You know, it wasn't as though the cars behind you, you know, you're, you're getting a, a two-car dice. We did see some of it, and I, that I don't think we would have seen last year because of the outpost that we got with last year's cars. The, the, the car, the leading car was much wider than it really, than visually it is because of the, the outwash, the turbulent airflow being wider than the car. So whenever you try to pass somebody, you still had that problem. Um, when you got beside them, you were still getting a lot of turbulence. Whereas this year, I think, whenever you get behind the car, you still get the turbulence. But when you pull out, you get less turbulence. So when you get beside somebody, you can um, achieve an overtaking maneuver a bit easier. But it's that initial part of pulling out. You know, the cars break so late. They have so much grip. You know, to, to, the cars are five metres long. And to, to pull five metres on the car from pulling out from behind them to, uh, to getting beside them is just impossible. You know, we've seen Fernando Alonso on a couple of occasions. One was um, Lance Stroll. I forget where it was. But almost doing a, you know... A flip backwards because he caught the rear wheel and then again in Brazil with uh, his teammate Esteban Ocon where he caught the rear wheel the reason the reason for that is because you know you want to slip straight for as long as possible you know your car is not feeling great but when you pull out it's going to be okay but you've got to be as close as possible because you want to slip straight for as long as possible and then pull out and you know that the grip level will be reasonable because there's less outwash so the regulations themselves have made the cars able to follow each other a bit better. They have meant that if you get beside someone, it's it's possible. Um, but the, the cars, you know, they're just too fast a car really to, to be able to achieve that. We even see it with lapping cars. You know, it's, it's not as though it's just the two cars that are racing together that have the same performance level. It's when someone comes up to lap a car, unless that car that's being lapped wants to let that other driver through, or or adheres to the blue flag with immediate effect, then then you can't do it. You know, it's just there might be a second and a half difference in your lap time, but it's just not enough to just make, make that dive. So they have worked, but not to the level that uh, I think you could say, "Well done, chaps, are really been successful." When you look at these regulations, are there any kind of specific things you think? Oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. I'd have liked to have seen F one do this. Any particular areas you think? Yeah, that that's not quite the right way. Well, I believe the cars are far too big. Um, I mean, they're massive cars these days, you know, five metres long. Nearly all of the cars are three and a half metre wheelbase. Um, they're two metres two meters wide. They've got huge tyres, very wide rims. All lovely stuff, you know, all, all great stuff whenever you sit and look at it. But the racetracks are the same. You know, they're, they're not bigger. Um, so difficult to, to put two cars side by side into like take Abu Dhabi which is fresh in our minds that's chicane Abu Dhabi at the end of the main straight you know two cars there side by side is nigh on impossible when you take a, a little bit of a racing line there's always one ends up getting pushed off the road so you you know make the cars a bit narrower give them relatively just a little bit less width of, of a wheel um, you can even keep the wheels the same width as they are if you wanted. It's not really a drama, but make the cars a bit narrower and and make the cars a bit shorter wheelbase-wise. The cars, we used to always be playing around at three metres wheelbase-wise in that sort of area. Um, and then they started to grow. And now there's a limit on them at three and a half metres. 
but it's it's a lot. You know, the front wing overhang doesn't have to be as much as it is. Uh, you can shorten the nose a bit. You can make the cars. You can tighten the, tidy the cars up quite quickly, quite a bit, and that makes them relatively on a given track. That makes the track wider. You know, if you a little bit's a little bit, but a little bit helps a lot. Uh, whenever you get into a tight squeeze, um, I wouldn't have the front wings as wide as they are because obviously we see front wing end plate damage a huge amount of times nowadays. The front wings the same width as the front wheels, so the driver the last time he the driver sees the front wing end plates is when he gets into the car, and when he gets back out again he has to look at it to see if it's still on there because there's a good chance they aren't. So just a little bit narrower would um, improve that. Rely, uh, as far as damage is concerned, a little bit less overhang um, would improve it. Um, and all those sort of things just help. You know, they don't hinder the racing. They just help the racing that little bit. You referenced the porpoising problem. One thing I, I wanted to ask you about is uh, Nicholas Tombassis uh, did reference that there was some smug, I think old timers was the phrase he used to, to describe some of those in the historic department in the FIA. He said, well, of course, this porpoising problem was going to uh, arise. And as... Um, it may be fair to, to to throw you into the uh, the old the old timer bracket, but you were around when Ground Effect was around in Formula One the first time. But why do you think it came as such as a surprise? Do you think the mechanism, obviously everyone was aware of, could be a problem? But is there something about these cars that makes it more easy to promote and create than was expected? Is there a reason to have been surprised by it? There shouldn't really be a reason, but it is quite different from the uh, the old boys' understanding of porpoising. Like, as you say, I am one of. Um, the porpoising we had back in the old days was purely underfloor tunnel problem. When you had the sliding skirt, you theoretically could seal the, the side of the car, you know, 99.9%, because the sliding skirt was running on the ground and it was sealed to the underfloor. As long as that kept working, your underfloor tunnel was producing high levels of downforce. Um, so the flow on that tunnel was critically important that you didn't expand it too much and that the speed of the airflow through the throat of the tunnel was you know, was too high. It could cause separation problems that just couldn't get through there. So in theory, if you had a perfect skirt system, you could, you could run the car and you could get porpoising. The, the ideal situation then was to... You know, you'd raise the throat of the floor that little bit just to allow more airflow through there. And it would, although you'd lose peak downforce, you'd gain consistency. If you had a, a problem with the skirt sticking up, then the downforce was inconsistent. So if the, if the skirt would jam down again, then, you know, you would, you would have a downforce consistency problem because you'd have good downforce, then you wouldn't. And that's really what's happening to these cars. They don't have a sliding skirt. They've got a, a floor height that the teams wanted to get as near to the ground as possible. But you can never run it consistently near the ground. It's always going to, to open up uh, at low speed and it's going to close down at high speed. In theory, what you want is all the downforce you can get at low speed and you don't, want you don't need all of it at high speed. So you want the opposite of what the car is doing. You want the car to go down at low speed and come up at high speed. So active suspension would be a, you know, something you could do that all with. But that's not what we've got. But the, the thing is, the, these cars are a bit like uh, the skirt sticking up. When you hit a bump, the car moves quickly. You lose downforce, then it comes back again. And that 
creates this porpoising solution again, but it isn't really a porpoising. It isn't really like the old porpoising, where you were stalling the underfloor tunnel. It's more of a change in downforce very rapidly as the car as the car generates movement. Um, so although the old, old boys, myself included, understood porpoising in the past, this porpoising was, was slightly different because A, you couldn't run the car as near the belt as happens on the racetrack because you can't make it touch the belt or else the belt, the model, the belt and everything would just be out the back window of the wind tunnel. You know, um, so you, you had a restriction in your research tool so you, you needed to make sure that you didn't um, you didn't overwork the underfloor too hard. Or, you know, maybe there is maybe there is teams out there, I don't know. Maybe there is teams out there that have played with their car with a ceiling skirt system in the wind tunnel that they could run to seal the side pod completely and then make sure the side pod didn't suffer from uh, aerodynamic stall because they sealed the side pod in theory hundred percent made the tunnel as efficient as possible and then worked on the airflow around the edges of the tunnel to to try to maximise the ceiling efficiency because that means that if the car does get near the ground, the tunnel doesn't stall. If the tunnel doesn't stall, the car doesn't bounce back up again. So you're, you're effectively developing your car outside of the regulations that you're allowed, but you're developing the car to get more information on how things are working if theoretically you have 100% seal on the side pod. So there's lots of different ways to, to look at it and try and understand it. But um, I think that's been the, the difficult thing is to you know, think laterally as to where, what the problem could be and how you would address it. And, you know, I think being an old boy and having the experience of the tunnels in the past doesn't do any harm when it comes to it because the problem is different, but the problem is the same. And, and you need to try and understand it in a different way. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. With the 2022 regulations, the focus for this episode, who better to ask about them than Nicholas Tombasis, the FIA's Head of Single Seater Technical Matters. He's one of the key architects of these regulations, so has lived and breathed them for a long time before one of these cars even ran in anger. Tombasis, of course, had a successful career with F1 teams before he joined the FIA in 2018. He first worked with Benetton, rising to the rank of head of aerodynamics before moving to Ferrari, then McLaren, then back to Ferrari again, and he also had a stint at Manor. I caught up with him at the end of the season to get his verdict on the new rules and discuss how they could evolve. Well, Nicholas, obviously you've lived and breathed these technical regulations for a, a long time, put a huge amount of work into them. What's your overall verdict in terms of how well they've delivered on the objectives you set out? Well, I, I think the, uh, they've delivered quite well. Um, they, the objectives we set out were, on the one hand, uh, to enable close racing, uh, enable cars to follow each other in the race, and... Uh, we believe that the combination of the aero regulations and the uh, tires did help uh, 
the aero regulations helped cars to actually be closer to each other uh, when following. And the tyres' uh, characteristics moved in a direction where the tyres overheated less and then hence enabled this battle to be longer. So we saw quite a few battles this year which lasted you know, many laps and maybe in the past uh, the drivers would complain that they have only one rail to go at it and then they had to drop back. So overall, quite happy. Um, close racing also needs convergence of performance. Uh, I think for first year of regulation, uh, we had some very exciting races, uh, even if the final result of the championship was quite a comfortable uh, one for one team. And I uh, think the lap time differences are, are coming down, so quite optimistic that uh, it will continue this, uh, that direction. And primarily these regulations were predicated on ground effect being more robust in terms of the turbulence effect, as well as obviously the things you did with the outside of the cars change that. How have you found that? Because obviously Formula One cars, is a long time since they've been ground effect cars, so that pushing this to, to extremes. Have you found the ground effect downforce has been more robust in terms of the way it's generated and less, less affected by what turbulence there is? Yes, I mean, it's... To improve the aerodynamics of the following car is a function of two aspects, uh, broadly speaking. One is how sensitive the following car is to to the changing conditions, and uh, having a simpler geometry compared to you know if you remember the, the barge boards and all the details of last year's cars uh, being less complicated. These cars are less sensitive to to these parameters. But then the other part, and that's probably the more important part, is the wake of the front car, how that is treated. Now, the the way that we have um, designed the diffusers and the rear wings and the front wheels and so on means that the front wheel wake is kept further close to the, to the car and not, doesn't go as far outboard as it used to go. And then this dirty air gets uh, catapulted up and therefore leaving a, a cleaner area for the following car in terms of um, energy of the flow and turbulence. And in order to preserve all that, there have been some areas where you've had to tighten up for, for next year, obviously things that were legal, but that weren't quite to the intent, the end plates of the Aston Martin, for example, the end plate of the Mercedes and a few other bits and pieces. That none. But are you quite pleased that actually there's not been so many things? Because with brand new regulations, until you throw 10 F1 teams at it and see what they're doing at it, you never know exactly what they'll come up with. Yes, uh, by and large, I think that the number of uh, what people would call loopholes or or unintended designs has been relatively low. I mean, we've had, I don't mean to mention some previous regulation cycles where there's been gigantic loopholes left open and, and massive um, distortions let's say so i'm quite happy that this hasn't been the case i think we've learned from previous 20 years of formula one and and been a lot more careful with the regulation writing process um, but nonetheless there were a few things that uh, went through the net that we had always said that if there were such things we would take action and we did do you think it's done enough these rules obviously people want miracles but you're fighting against the laws of physics, obviously, with a short of running the cars in a vacuum, you're going to have turbulent air, aren't you? So do you think within what's actually possible, it's as big a step as it needed to be? Um, 
I don't know what, what I mean. I think we can still make an extra step. I believe um, cars need to have downforce at that level of performance. I don't think uh, we would want to have cars with very little or no downforce, uh, which obviously would be the easiest to get close racing with. You know, we do need to have cars at a certain level of performance, and I think um, that after all the racing, uh, you don't want overtaking it would be just a formality you also want there to be a proper fight so i think it's close to where it needs to be but obviously still some way to go to to make it as perfect as we can the issues with porpoising and also bouncing too related but slightly different problems are obviously a big talking point do you feel that's been dealt with pretty well by the rule changes for next year and the aom metric that came in this season i mean clearly the whole issue caught us by surprise we were not expecting it and we saw it in the first test already and then understood after a few races that it was actually, um, well, we felt dangerous and, and certainly um, also probably responsible to the drivers that they had sometimes to endure such conditions. Um, and uh, so we took two stages of actions, one for, for this year in terms of the stiffness of the planks and, and the AOM metric and then a bit of an arrow change. I think they've gone all in the right direction. In the meantime, also teams, I think, have understood a lot more of the phenomenon and, and have managed to control it better. So, um, yeah, I'm reasonably pleased with the reaction there. Um, clearly, I wish we had known it before and we would have then taken action before going racing, but, uh, but unfortunately, some things do not get anticipated properly. Why do you think the porpoising was such a surprise? Obviously, the basic mechanism's well-known historically, but is it a question of these cars are just driving ground-effect aero so much more aggressively than in the past and just the nature of Formula 1 teams there going to be ultra-aggressive with trying to generate that downforce? And when you've got that, those great downforce numbers at low ride heights, you, they kind of get sucked into it. I think it's pretty much what you said. I think people were developing and finding quite a lot of performance there. Uh, the porpoising isn't something you can simulate properly in the wind tunnel, uh, and the CFD is not a simple simulation to do. Uh, so um, a lot of people just didn't anticipate it. Now, we FAA don't actually develop a car. We don't you know, develop the regulations, and there's a car developed to help us write the regulations, but we don't actually then try to put performance in it. So we only knew about it quite late um, but the teams I think uh, most teams got probably carried away with their downforce figures and uh, didn't anticipate it but the floor edge rules seem to be in about the right place the 15 millimeters higher for next year I hope so yeah uh, obviously one of the things with these rules they're very prescriptive and there were concerns every car would look the same I remember when the regulations were launched in what 2019 in Austin uh, you put up various uh, images, his various different types of car you can have under that. And I must admit, I was quite skeptical because I thought, well, they'll all converge on similar things quite quickly. But we have seen just visually quite dramatically different cars. So does that reflect that you've kind of hit the sweet spot in terms of the regulations that you've prescribed it enough to have the effect you wanted, but still allow freedom of, of design? Um, I think it's. Not far from the sweet spot, but what exactly is a sweet spot? I'm not sure. Um, uh, yes, we, we did know that some areas of the car um, are less sensitive for the wake performance, but uh, 
potentially bigger changes can have a small effect and we left more freedom there in some areas such as the front wing for example which are of massive importance for how the front wheel wake behaves those ones we couldn't afford to do to maximize the freedom there which is why they're much more prescriptive so i think it's probably close to where it needs to be but i'm sure engineers would think otherwise and um, commercial people maybe would think the opposite obviously drs is always a talking point there's always been that kind of background hope that one day drs might not be necessary but obviously the realities of, of physics again make that difficult can you see a progression with these rules as they evolve obviously you've got the big change in 26 where there's the chance to build on on these regs uh, significantly can you see a point where things like drs isn't necessary or is it just going to have to be a fact of life i think it will probably be still around uh, we also need to consider that for 26 we're likely to have or we, or we want to have a much lower drag cars overall um, so we're making a huge reduction of drag as part of our drive towards more efficiency and um, <clears throat> and that does involve some movable aerodynamics uh, by necessity which in some ways is a bit like a drs so so um i don't think we're going to see anytime soon cars with no drs Can you elaborate a little bit on the movable aero ideas for 26 yes i mean um we we want to have more, um, you know, a basic energy saving around the lap and to, to have less energy consumed or less. We don't want to be burning as much fuel to go around the lap. And we're working on the engine side uh, regulations with more electrical and less ICE. But overall, a car to consume less energy also needs to have a less, um, let's say, energy wasted in pushing the air out of the way so lower drag in other words and equally we don't want to completely compromise the cornering speeds so the obvious effect then is to go towards potentially a rear movable rear wing or something like that which would allow uh, cars on the straight to have uh, lower drag figures basically and to be clear that would be for use 100 percent of the time it wouldn't be a conditional use no that would be 100 percent then you would have to have, or oh, we are looking at solutions that go on top of that, which are, let's say, the equivalent of the DRS. So it's a, it's a slightly more elaborate. In, there would be two states of car performance plus a DRS on top of that sort of thing. Is there any consideration being given to the idea of having some form of active suspension, a basic system? Because that could also be a way to, to tackle the, uh, the drag, couldn't it, in terms of changing the platform, or is that not on the agenda? It does have an effect. All it's not as big as the wings, uh, in effect. And, uh, and active uh, suspension can have other issues, can open up all sorts of other routes for controlling the platform for the teams that... Uh, we we also want the cars to remain challenging for the drivers. We don't want them to be able to adjust the car balance so easily to 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 make it, uh, let's say, less of a challenge for the driver. So we we want to keep it as a challenge for the drivers. One of the other objectives of twenty six is containing or reducing the weight. Obviously, the fact there's that containing caveat and there does underline how difficult it is to take the weight off. Is it realistic to make the cars lighter for twenty six? Do you think? significantly lighter. I think it is realistic to make them a bit lighter um, um, not a massive amount uh, we have to consider that the differences in weight for uh, since 
2000, let's say 20 years ago or so, is about 200 kilos, which is a massive number. And out of those 100, 200 kilos, about 100 come from the power unit, so from all electrical part, batteries, uh, turbos, and so on. And that is a big number of, of weight increase. But I think it is necessary to keep Formula One relevant to the directions of society. While we, uh, you know, Petalhead would like a, a V10 and end of story, uh, we, you know, we have to go to the direction we've gone. So that accounts for about half the weight increase. About um, 50 odd kilos uh, are safety. So halos, uh, much stronger chassis, uh, bigger impact protections, and so on and so forth. And again, nobody would want to to compromise that. And then there's about uh, then there's the, where the opportunity lies, and that is uh, there's about um, 15 to 20 kilos because of more complex systems on the cars, and there's about uh, 30 to 35 kilos on car dimensions. So in other words, the cars are much longer and wider and and bigger tires and so on. And we believe in the car dimension side there lies an opportunity uh, we would want 2026 cars to be quite a lot shorter and probably maybe a bit narrower uh, as well and uh, and all of that is going to contain the weight increase on the other side there's a battery increase because we're going more electrical which is adding a bit of weight so net effect i hope it's going to be a bit lighter but not a massive amount as a final question looking shorter term very minor changes for next year, some tidying up. You've got the investigation into the wheel arches to be used in wet conditions. So should we expect just incremental changes over the coming years before 26? Ideally, with the exception of the wheel arches, which I stress are only for extreme wet conditions, they're not a permanent feature. Um, and it's just to enable us to go racing when otherwise we wouldn't. With the exception of that, ideally, we we hope to keep changes until 2020, end of 25 um, to as small a uh, level as possible, ideally no changes if possible, and to concentrate on 26 and also to let performance converge on the current cars. Well, lots to look forward to technically in F1. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. You can either write us a question and email it to podcasts at race.com and don't forget the hyphen in the race.com, or record a voice note, making sure you tell us who you are, then we can play it on the show. Today's question is from Rofi SMSF, who says thanks to all for a great podcast that concentrates on hardcore F1 tech and not politics or palaver. With Red Bull seemingly having a tyre degradation advantage over Ferrari at most tracks this year, how is the reverse performance at the Red Bull ring explained? Are the track or the 2022 spec cars that different, or was this circuit the odd one out in 2022? If so, why? If the next race was at the Red Bull ring, would this still be the case? Yeah, it's, um, if you look at it logically, I mean, it's it's one of those things where I think for every team, the tyre degradation is just right on the knife edge um, as to getting the performance out of the car and getting uh, the tyre to, to last. So I think it's very easy to, tr- to trip over either way. 
more easy to trip over it negatively than positively. Uh, but I think the the Red Bull Ring is one of those circuits where it it really does require a very strong front end on the car um, to to be to be quick. Um, you know, the, I think you'd you'd find that most drivers complain bitterly about the car, the front end of the car not having the grip, not having the bite to sort of cope with the type of corner that's there because they're they're relatively low speed corners, all of them. Um, and you know long straights, so you're fighting the battle all the time is getting the front end to work. And I think you know Red Bull just maybe went over the top on that because I know Max Verstappen is a driver who, as one, just hates the understeer. Uh, he just can't cope with it, so he'll push, 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 push to get that front end bite. And then when you when it that's that's okay because you can get it for for the one lap, two laps, whatever. But then when it comes to lap six, lap eight, lap ten of a, a long run, suddenly that front end bite is is hurting the rear of the car uh, quite dramatically, hurting the rear tires. So that's whenever the rear tire degradation sets in because normally it's it's you know it's rear tire degradation um, in the race and it's front tire bite in qualifying. So that that compromise, I think Red Bull went the wrong way uh, in red in the in the Red Bull ring, and you know it it, it is as I say, it's just a very fine line between being right and being wrong. Uh, I think if we went back to the Red Bull ring uh, now, um, it would be a different story because they would obviously have learned about it and uh, they would react to it because they're very good at that, and they do. They are a team that that definitely build a car to get the reaction out the front of the car. As best they can, because the front of the car is the thing that you have to have. You know, you have to get the car to turn. It has to turn without making the rear nervous, um, but it has to turn because if you can't turn, understeer is just slow. Um, the driver will always, always complain about understeer, no matter what happens. Um, if you have oversteer, the, the driver will drive to the speed of the oversteer. Very few drivers will, will drive past. Uh, will drive happily with a, with the car oversteering. But most drivers will drive with the car understeering and just complain. So you end up with a situation where if you can get rid of some of that understeer, you go faster um, because of the front tire bite. But it's very easy to get the car to, to get to a point where the, the rear is just right on the limit. And I think that's what happened to Red Bull. And we should also point out that there's often the mistake made of regarding tire degradation as an immutable characteristic of a Grand Prix car. While it's true there are trends, they're also hugely sensitive to conditions. Silverstone 2020 was a brilliant example of that, as they were back-to-back races one weekend after the other. Mercedes dominated the first, then struggled in the warmer second race. They had blistering problems, and Red Bull had the quickest car over race stints. So it's easy to un- so it is easy to underestimate how big an impact relatively small swings in temperature can have. Yeah, well, this is one of the reasons why I said, you know, all the teams are sitting on a knife edge as far as that's concerned. You know, a few degrees one way or another can just affect how the car works, how the car responds. We've seen it before where, you know, um, Red Bull are struggling because it's a little bit cool and then come qualifying, it warms up a bit and suddenly they're on pole or they're fastest. You know, so it it doesn't take much to influence how you go about getting your tyre to work properly. Um, It's one of those situations where I think you... You know, you have to read it live all the time. But the, 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 there's very few tools in the toolbox now that allow you to change the car from qualifying to the race. Yes, you can drop the front wing off a little bit, but any, any team that does that ends up, you lose overall grip because you're taking downforce out of the car. So why would you want to do as much, much of that? Um, you can change the, uh, the differential settings. You can sort of alter the, the engine torque settings. 
slightly, but again, all of them are uh, in a negative direction for speed. So you always do as little as possible. You know, they're there, they're set up where they are for a certain reason because that's the quickest solution. So why would you want to change that for the race? If And you might change it, but you'll change it by very small percentages. Well, thanks very much for that question. Remember, if you have a question on any tech topic you'd like us to tackle on a future podcast, make sure you send it in to podcasts at therace.com. And Gary, thanks to you as always for your insight. There's still plenty more tech topics for us to delve into, so join us next week for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic. 